You know, when my uh, son had finished college last December and he was going to kind of launch into life teaching position and move to Memphis, and uh, I bought a car off Mr. Jim Bethune here. Uh, one of, what was that, like seventh or eighth car I bought off you? Feels like. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I was checking the fluids like a great dad before James headed back off to Indiana and then to Memphis. And I pulled to open the hood, you know, the little uh, lever you kind of pull to open the hood. It's on a metal wire, and it broke right off. The plastic broke off. And listen, I don't care how strong you are, and you know I'm super strong. Um, you cannot grab that wire and pull that thing and open the hood uh, on your own. And so I went and I bought a, a, a little set of vice grips, you know, small vice grip, and I clamped them down on there. And sure enough, just opened that thing. No problem. I just told James, just don't take those vice grips off. Well, that'll be, and they, as far as I know, they're still there today, Jim. Uh, a year later, they're, they're working there. So, um, you know, hey, I don't think the vice grip guy that created vice grips, like, created them for that purpose. I don't think he thought, we're going to, like, we're going to need a hood opening division of this company. And I, I know they didn't, uh, but it worked. It got, kind of got the job done, right? Um, though there's a lot of great things uh, for vice grips. Uh, the, the silly metaphor is this. Uh, we could use this church for a lot of great things, the building. It can be a wonderful place. I mean, programs, we're going to decorate tonight, things like that. Women's you had a great event last uh, Saturday, and I think you're having another great event coming up. Men, what are we doing? Huh? So, I don't know. we got to do something. We can use the building for all kinds of stuff, but it was intended. It was given to us as a tool, as, uh, to have a, a purpose of offering ourselves to the Lord and seeing other people come to know Jesus Christ. That is the purpose and focus of this building. This is just a tool. Listen, it, it, this sounds weird. It's not home, right? It's, it, it, this is not like this is our permanent place. This is, this is a tool God has given us to reach people for Jesus Christ and to offer ourselves before the Lord. That's what it is. And, uh, and so we can use it for a lot of different purposes, but that is the reason God gave us this tool. We just sang something. I, I, I didn't know this song very well, forgive me, Amy, but, I mean, you guys knocked it out of the park there. And um, it's kind of a traditional song that's been uh, contemporized. But the words that we just sang were, there is nothing stronger than the wondrous working power of the blood. Right? I mean, that even feels like an old hymn-style writing. We don't, we don't say wondrous as much anymore in our songs. Uh, but as I was singing that, I'm like, man, you and I, we all have somebody in our life that we're like, man, I'd love for them to know Jesus Christ. I would love for them to know this wondrous working power, this transformational power of Jesus Christ. You might sit at the dinner table with them every day, or they might come over, you know, because you're part of your family, or they're a coworker, or they're a friend, or a neighbor. You know somebody that you have, sometimes you've kind of said, Lord, would you just have so-and-so come to know you as your Savior? And the question is, for all of us, me included, is what are you doing about it? God has given you, as he has me, as, as his church, certain tools. He's given you your testimony. He's given you the uh, generosity to offer things to people. For us, he's given us a church building so that we can lead people to Jesus Christ. But I know this. We're probably not going to sit back with our tools in our hand and just say, all right, do it, God. He's going to say, no, you go and use the tools I've given you. And God says, look, it's my, my work whether they say yes or not. But you get out there and do it. So I want to encourage you, especially as we get into this Christmas season. That's why I gave you a card. 
use the tool of this Christmas season. Use this building. We're going to have a fun series at the movies. Use that. Use everything to offer yourself to the Lord and to uh, bring somebody along with you. So sound good? All right. And afterwards, like I said, there's cake to celebrate. For those who, um, you know, came in a little later, uh, there is cake available afterwards that we'll celebrate with. Uh, so that'll be good. Hey, we're going to do the last week of this series that we're calling More About the Bible. We'll skip one of them since I was out last week. We'll just pick it up next year when we have a similar series. Um, I told you two weeks ago we're preaching through the table of contents, so we just walked through the table of contents. We, we, we looked at the different sections, the, the books of the Bible, how they're grouped out, how they became to know that, and what are they actually about, and we talked about the difference between Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant. And then I told you what we're going to do this week is we're going to focus on chapter and verse. How did they actually come up with these ideas, this, as we like to say, this pastoral math of turn to chapter 4, verse 3. It's as much math as we need to know. So how did this come about? How did it happen? To get there, though, we have to look at the canon of Scripture. Now, it's not a word we use a lot unless we're actually talking about a canon, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but canon actually means catalog. That's, that's the definition of what it means. So when we say I have a, a canon of something, it's a catalog of something. Some of you have a canon of Harry Potter books at your house, right? Who are you? So, yeah, I, I know you out there. Um, some, you know, some of us more mature people have a canon of Lord of the Rings books at our house. Some of you apparently have both at your house. I'm not sure what to call you. So, uh, yeah. So when somebody writes seven books, ten books over the course of ten to fifteen years with the same character and kind of the continuing stories of, it's pretty easy to put them together in a catalog or put them together in a collection and say this is a canon, even though we don't often use that word. But when we get into the scripture that's written uh, many different books by many different authors over a long, long period of time, it gets a little more dicey on how this thing got put together and called a collection, or the word we like to use, scripture. And how did that come about? I want you to think about the term of canon when we think about scripture in two different ways. I've put this in your notes, so if you want to track through this, there's probably a ton. Let me just pause for a second. This has, the idea of canon has been worked on for the last 2,400 years, right? And so for me walking through it in the next 20 minutes, I probably will not quite do it the justice uh, that it needs. So I'm giving you a good overview. So if you want to write notes and then go back and do some research on your own, uh, please do. There's plenty of stuff out there, and, uh, and uh, I can be helpful for you as well. But I want you to think about two things when you think about canon. The first is this. I want you to see Scripture as a guide or uh, a rule. In fact, that's how Scripture was most commonly looked at as a guide or a rule, meaning this has some authority, and this is something that should be lived by. Now, that's kind of how it, it, it would have been looked at really all the way up till uh, really about the 4th century uh, uh, A.D. It was more looked at as the guide, follow, a rule. This is what we should live by. The dominant way the Hebrews in the Old Testament looked at it and the early Christians looked at this as something to live by. How many of you guys, like, you really lock in when you buy a car with a maintenance schedule? You're just like, boom, you're on it, right? Yeah, Jeff Yates, I believe that. So, <laughs> Pastor Reese, Jeff tried to tell me first service that that was him. And I was like, no, no, come on, come on. 
But yeah, Jeff, I believe it. Like, I mean, you're locked in, you buy that car, and you're like 3,000 oil change. I know our modern cars, 10,000 oil change, whatever, right, on you. But I mean, you're just locked in. You, you go, I, like, I looked this up. We just bought that Buick, you know, right, because I'm almost turned 50, so I got to buy a Buick. So I just bought a Buick, and um, I'm sorry, Bob, you, we both drive Buicks. So, so we're peers. We're peers, Bob. So, um, I don't know where I'm going. So, but I bought that thing, and I thought, I'm going to ask about the, about the, the service. I hit kind of one of the 30,000 uh, plateaus, and I asked for the, the service. said, hey, what would this involve, and what would it cost? And they came back and said, well, it's this, 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 it's about $1,600. You know, like, thank you. I'll see you, uh, see you down the road. Uh, but some of you are like, you nail that kind of stuff. Why? Because when you look at that maintenance schedule, you see it as a rule or a guide to say, I have to live by this. My car has to live by this. And so some of you are that way with your food. That idea a few years ago, maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago, the idea of counting macros started to come out. So some of you, like, you love the macros. You got your protein, your fat, and your carb, you know, and you're looking at those numbers every day and making sure you hit those numbers. Why? Because you see those numbers as a rule or a guide. So that has been the most dominant way to look at Scripture, a rule or a guide. And we should, and we should continue to look at it. But also... There, when we consider canon, there is looking at it as a list or a catalog, a list of books, a list or a catalog of books, letters, writings that should be viewed as authoritative, that we should live by. But looking at it, well, how do we get that list? How did that catalog come about? Did you know there was more writings? There's been a lot of other writings. In fact, far more writings, even about Jesus, than the number of books we have in the New Testament, which means they were not chosen to be a part of this catalog or this list. So when we think of canon, often today we think of canon in terms of a list, a catalog, and we think of it as closed. You know what I mean by closed? It means you're not adding. I don't care how inspired you get this afternoon to write a little letter to the Windover Hills Church, the believers at Windover Hills. You know, write it. It could be amazing, and God could bless it and God could use it, it ain't going in here, right? Because we would say it's, it's closed. And that, I think, in the end is good for our biblical canon, right? It's good. So we want to think in those two ways of a canon. It's a guide or a rule to live by. That's a, a definition. But it's also a list. It's a catalog uh, as well. So how do we get to the canon that we have? Take a look at your notes. The road to the canon of the Christian scripture, but let me be more precise and say of the Protestant scripture, because as you're going to see, if you're, if you're Orthodox, if you're Catholic, some of the especially Old Testament books would be a, a little different. So how do we come to this? Our new tower, our canon, actually is broke up or came together by two different things. One, it was the Hebrew scriptures. We often call it, what, the Old Testament, right? This is called the Hebrew scriptures. This is a word that was written to God's chosen people, to the Israelites or the Hebrews, right? And eventually, these letters or these writings or these books started to be grouped together, and they were circulated in this way. And so this Hebrew scripture uh, started to be kind of known as this is the group. Now, there was a difference in what fit into that group, and so you have this kind of gamut between about 26 different writings to our 39, and then there's even more if you add what's called the Apocrypha, with which the Catholic Church puts in there. 
Um, and so somewhere that was kind of the range, but there was a grouping that was sent around and it was known as scripture. The concept of having a closed canon to say this is it, no more, that didn't really exist uh, throughout those Old Testament days. Somewhere around 400 years before Christ, we actually know those 400 years, we call it the 400 years of silence. Uh, not because everybody didn't speak, but because we don't get any writings. We don't, we don't get much about that that ended up in our canon. Well, somewhere around that time, there was significant Greek influence taking over. And as that Greek influence took over, we actually got the language of Greek. It became the more prominent language that was spoken in the area that we see, especially in the New Testament. Um, and because of that, and because this grouping was out there starting to circulate or starting to be used in this way, the need for a Greek translation started. And so what we understand, what we need to understand with Hebrew scriptures is the word Septuagint, which is simply the Greek translation. And so now that we have this, well, what, book, what books would we actually translate into Greek? We don't want to do every writing known to man out there. Which ones would we put into Greek so that, that God's people can now read it in the language that they're most likely using? This is the, the grouping that was put together, what you see. 36 of the 39 we have ended up in the Septuagint. And they were translated into Greek, and now it was commonly used uh, it, that translation was commonly used, and so people are hearing it in that way. That is the first kind of unofficial development of a canon when that was put together. And so <coughs> that's the start of the Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament canon. Now, even to get to that point, it was first in oral tradition. I want you to know that uh, at the very beginning. It wasn't written down. It was an oral tradition, eventually written down. Eventually, they're circulated more individually, uh, these writings, Right? Or they were shared individually, if in oral, eventually written down and started to be grouped. And we get what we just said, this first kind of canon around 400 B.C. or when the Septuagint uh, shows up. The Septuagint actually shows up a little bit later in the 3rd century using that grouping from 400 B.C. So that's how we get the first thing. The second is the Gospels. You know, the, or not the Gospels, but the Gospel. You know the Gospel. That's anything about Jesus Christ. Anything where it's kind of... It's focused on Jesus, his person, biography-wise, or it's written about Jesus, or it's written to a church encouraging them uh, in their walk with Jesus. If I were to send you uh, a, an email, and I'd say, hey, I just want to encourage you in your walk with Christ. You know, I, I, you know hey, I, I know it's been hard. I know it's been easy for you to kind of step off it a little bit. I want to encourage you, really plug back in with Jesus and spend time with him. I think there's something there for you. I'm really writing you gospel, is what I'm writing you. I'm writing you about Jesus, about good news of Jesus. So anything that shows up uh, in there, that's the second part. So we have some breakdowns there. We've got some writings and letters about Jesus himself, right? You know them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Frank. Just make sure you're staying with me. John, we get those that, that show up there. Those are our gospels. They're more seemingly biographical. That's not a perfect definition. They're more about Jesus. But did you know there was additional Gospels that were written, different, uh, additional biographical-style books that were written about Jesus? How about the Gospel of Thomas? Are you familiar with that? The Gospel of Mary uh, as well. You can look at these, and you might ask the question, well, why did those not show up in there? Why is that there more? Well, hang on to that question. We'll get there in just a second. 
But these four is eventually what was settled on. These were written and started to be circulating in the first century, so early on. In fact, I'll give you some dates. If you want to kind of nerd out on these, write these down. This is what they are. Mark, about 66 AD, Mark was, was written. Matthew, 70. Luke, about 80 AD, and John, about 90 AD. Now, there's a little fluctuation in each of those, uh, but that's about the, the years they were written. So you could see this is not long after Jesus. Now, in our day and age where everything moves like this, Right, we would say, why did somebody wait 30 years? But in Jesus' day, this is not slow at all to put this together. So then we get other writings and letters about, or about and or to the Christian church. These are people that are writing to a group of believers somewhere or writing to an established church or writing to a pastor or writing to an elder, writing to somebody who's on mission, these type of writings. And so those start to surface and they start to circulate even as early as the book of Mark. Some of them earlier are written. In fact, we get as early as 35 AD, there's early fragments of writings about Jesus. Now, these are not biblical ones that show up in our canon. These are ones more with Roman officials or Roman uh, leaders who are writing back and forth, and they're speaking about this guy named Jesus. But the interesting thing is there's talk about the beliefs and the followers and what they're doing. And they actually, in one say, talk about the good that they're doing, the benevolence that's being offered. Um, but, of course, they didn't like it because they were becoming popular. But those are writings as early as 35. This is very close after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. These are starting to be spread. Now, there's a progression. As there's more writings, the question started to surface of what is Scripture? this progression of what's considered scripture. So, so questions had to be risen, right? It wasn't like somebody started one day saying, hey, here's the five questions. This is what we'll ask. This is the criteria. But over time, there started to be questions that were asked. One question, is it given authority? Is there authority to this? Do we as a church, do we as believers say, yes, there is power and authority in that word? We would want that sent to believers and Christians, and we'd want them to live by this. This is consistent. This is what we want. And so there was this authority and backing. Second question is, when was it written? This was an important question. When was this written? Because even though we move very fast, it wasn't until late in the 4th century that we actually get the canon as we know it today. So over that period, they would ask the question, well, when was this written? How close? Oh, Mark in 66 AD. That's good. That's close to Jesus. But something else, oh, that was around, you know, second, maybe third century. All right, well, pff, it's out. So when was it written was an important question. Is it consistent? Does it carry the consistent message of the gospel? Does it carry the message of the Old Testament and the prophecy about Jesus Christ or the earliest letters that were circulating. Why is it that some of those Gospels that I just mentioned, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, don't show up? Because they're heavily agnostic, or excuse me, not, they're heavily Gnostic, meaning that they actually have writings where they deny the physical form of Jesus, almost like it was uh, a little bit of trickery that Jesus looked like a human, but really he was always physical. He never took a human body, because you can't take a human body and be good, that would have been Gnostic understanding. That was super popular in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. It's actually still in some ways popular today. 
But that was a big thing the church was battling against. You could see the early stages of it even in the letters of John, 2 John, 3 John, the book of Jude. You can see the early stages of them battling this type of thinking, which would make sense. Those letters would have been written very late in the first century. So is it consistent with the biblical message? Thomas and Mary didn't sound consistent, so it, they were put out. And then later on, not right away, but later on, as the idea of the canon being more closed, closing this, you know, like we've got to say these are the books. As that idea started to surface more, the question of was there an eyewitness was important. Is it linked to some form of eyewitness? Well, when we consider the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they're <laughs> very close to that time, or at very least could be interviewing people who were eyewitnesses with Jesus. Paul, we have this dramatic conversion story where he was face to face with Jesus. Then the validation, uh, or the va the validation, excuse me, of his testimony with the the leaders in Jerusalem. And so, because of that, his would have been deemed eyewitnesses. We have Peter's, we have John, um, some of those writings as well, James. So we understand eyewitness became very important. When the eyewitnesses went away, guess what? the idea of a closed canon became much, much stronger. In 33, uh, 331 A.D., Constantine actually commissioned some form of a canon. He wanted to get his smartest people in the room and figure out what are the writings that we're going to give Scripture authority to and what are the ones that we would not. And Aetius, in 367, he actually first put this list together, 27 books. They're exactly the 27 you have in your Bible this morning, just in a different order. That was the first one that was put together. Then in, eight, in 386, that was kind of brought. It was called, it was ordained, that list. And it was put in the order that you have it today. And finally, it was actually voted on at the Council of Hippo in 393. And from then on, boom, you have your canon of your New Testament that's put together also. And that pretty much became the canon. Actually, they canonized the whole thing, Old and New Testament. But the 27 is what they were kind of debating during that time. And that's where we get our canon of Scripture. Listen, that's 15 minutes to try to walk you through, especially on the New Testament side, what's being talked about for 2,000 years. So I encourage you, do a little more work on that and look in there. Why? Who cares? What does it matter? You know, I just want to read the thing. Um, well, when we start to say, this will be my standard for living, this is what I will used to decide the direction I'm going, what I choose, what I reject, well, the question would ask, is it reliable then? How reliable is it? And this is one of the great questions when we ask, how did it get put together that teaches us about reliability? So there's so much more to look at, but we're going to move on because we really titled this message chapter and verse. How do we get chapter and verse? So take a look at your notes. We'll continue on here. Chapter and verse. Do you know that the original form of this Bible you have had no distinctions at all. No chapter, no verse. You probably knew, probably many of you knew that. But did you also know, for the most part, it had no paragraphs, no punctuation, no capital letters and lowercase letters. Try to read something like that. Does anybody ever re send you a text that's written that way? And you're like, what in the world are they talking about? I have no idea what they're saying. Anybody have somebody that they talk and run on sentences? They just keep going, like they have some magical art of not breathing because they just keep talking. You know, yeah, and, and, and you, you've never heard any punctuation in there. 
Now, can you imagine picking up a document like this and reading through it without any of those distinctions at all? Well, that was the task as they would look at this. So you would understand early on, they felt like we, we've got to figure out how to organize so this is better read, better understood, better studied, and that type of thing. So as canon formed, as we just talked about, sections were developed as well. But it wasn't, wouldn't have been sections like you have right now, like when you look at the heading and it says Jesus walked on water. It would have been a lot of Roman numerals, which you may or may not have quite understood. In fact, there were several that, there, it's a little hard to even understand why the section was broke up, some in the middle of stories or the middle of thought. Um, but there were some sections that was developed. And then later on uh, in the 5th centuries, uh, we get Galilea, which is actually means headings in Greek. And those headings are very similar to what you have today. Those headings were actually used to kind of describe what you were about to read. So you might have something that says feeding of the 5,000 or something to that degree, creation, law, those type of things that helped us understand. And those headings have largely held to today uh, as well. So then in 400 AD, uh, uh, kind of a, a big development, as Latin became the dominant language, and as we see Christianity spread through the Western church at a fast and a heavy rate, the, the Bible is actually translated from Greek into Latin. Do you remember what it was called? Some of you history buff? What's that? The Vulgate, yes. Yeah, the Latin Vulgate was written um, there. Disappointed, Rich, that you let Jeremy beat you to that, Mr. History Teacher, back there. I, was, I looked right at you first, gave you an opportunity. So, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Yeah, the Vulgate was written, it was a Latin translation. In fact, they were so confident in this translation that it was like, we're done. I mean, that's all we need. There, there doesn't need to ever be another translation because, you know, Latin is the language now, and uh, that will be the language, and we've got this translation in place, and it came from a good translation, so we're locked in. In fact, there was such passion about Latin and this this language being connected and this being like a God language there, that there are many churches today that only do their services in Latin because they still feel strongly uh, about this here. So that lasted, that, that uh, translation lasted, it stuck. Now, there are so many other translations, so many other things that happen uh, from 400 BC or AD on in the way of translations. You might know things like Dead Sea Scrolls, things like that are so significant but we're not necessarily doing a translation study. That would be a whole other passage. We'd never make that in a 30-minute sermon. I'm helping you understand chapter and verse. And chapter and verse came out of the Vulgate. Because 800 years after it was translated, Cardinal Stephen uh, Langston, he worked chapters into what we have today. Almost identically to what we have today. So we're working a long time on these chapters now as they're written today or as, they, or as they're broken up today. And they're very similar, almost identical. About 350 years later, Robert Estine was first to divide further into verses, to break it down even further. So now we have chapter and verse, and those are almost identical to what we have today as well. It was almost as if once chapters and verse came in, to some degree, chapter and verse was canonized as well, to say, this is it. These are our chapters. These are our verses. Now, biblical scholars, if you get with them, they'll tell you, yeah, they messed it up in a few spots. You ever read uh, Revelation chapter 8, you'll see that chapter 7 actually ends with chapter 8, verse 1. 
it, it doesn't make sense otherwise, right? It certainly doesn't make sense to start chapter 8, 1. You know, you're, you're kind of fin uh, finishing a thought and starting a, it just, you can see it. You'll see that a couple times in, in the Gospels uh, as well. There's a time in the book of John where there's a story that doesn't have good chronology. It's hard to understand where it fits, uh, but it is put in the best spot they, they could put it in. But even that, you see some of the, the, the numbers, it's like, like, how does that perfectly match up? And now we go one verse other, and we're in a totally different story and a totally different thought. Some of that shows up. But for the most part, they were taken chapter and verse at this time, and that is what we've had for over 500 years, or about 500 years now, locked in. Let's talk about some pros and cons. Did you know there's some cons to having chapter and verse? Yeah, there are, but let's look at the pros first, right? Because we're supposed to be positive people. So here's the first thing. It helps us navigate and study the Bible, right? You know that it's going to be so good to navigate and get around the Bible. Can you imagine if there was no way to break down this? I mean, you'd either be having to underline or you'd have those little, you know, those little tabs some of you have sticking out that you've put on there, post-it tabs. I mean, just think about the thousands you'd have sticking out to try to figure out where it is. Um, well, being able to navigate, certainly, certainly helpful. Being able to study is helpful. To look at one translation with another translation. Go back to the original language if you want, and they've gone back and they've attached the verses on and chapter and verse onto that. It makes it so much easier. How about helpful to memorize? I mean, when you memorize, do you not look at a verse and say, I'm going to memorize 1 John 4.19? I told you, first one I've ever memorized. But instead, if you just said, I'm going to memorize, I don't know, it's somewhere close to the middle, like go to the middle and flip a few pages. It starts with the or something, you know, and it'd be very, very difficult to try to figure out what we're memorizing, what we're looking at uh, there. And then it's helpful for new translations. Once we're locked in with chapter and verse, now if a new translation is commissioned and, and put into practice, the translation we use on Sunday mornings, uh, Common English Bible was... 2011, we're about, what, 11 years into that translation, that works off of chapter and verse. It's not like you start your new translation and say, I'm going to do my own chapters and verses, and I'm going to put them wherever I want. So it all kind of works perfect off those, so those can work side by side. How about some cons? Did you know there's some? Yeah, a couple of them. Some breaks are incoherent. I just shared one with you from Revelation. I shared something there with, with John. There are some breaks where it looks like I don't quite... Un it's not a perfect train of thought there. Um, and so that happens in a, on a few different occasions. When you're reading the book of Romans, you will come across a few times where it seems like Paul is still trying to logically argue something, but it's kind of cut off and then a new chapter begins. Um, and so it seems like, well, shouldn't that just keep flowing through the same chapter? So there are some places that seem a little coherent, incoherent there. And then here's a big one. It's easy to quote and study out of context. It's easy to take one verse, maybe even one passage, and actually study or quote that out of context. This is like blown up in the social media world, right? Because somebody can post something on there and, and you know, they, it just sounds good. It sounds nice. But there's a whole context behind it. Or you're like, I am going to, I am going to prove my political side right now with this Bible verse, Right? And I'm reading it going, well, that's way out of context. <laughs> so um, it's easy for us to do if we're not careful in this way. Can I give you one? Give you an example? I've given you this in the past. 
you love Jeremiah 29, 11? Yeah? Somebody say it. You know it. Yeah, we love that verse, right? I know the plans I have. They're so good, the plans I have for you. All right? Somebody is graduating, right? I don't know. Where are my graduates? Some, somebody's graduating. Where's Brayden? So, I don't know. So there, there's graduates in here. Hey, there you are. Somebody's getting a card on graduation that's got Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. You know, it's wonderful. But here's the context, right? So you got to wait 70 years before you're going to get that. So because that's what the context says. In 70 years, I know the plans I have for you. I'm going to take care of you. So if you guys would just hang on to 88 years old, the Lord is taking care of you. So, yeah, the Lord is taking care of you. It's fine to quote the verse. It's fine to you. There's no problem. But there are some dangers in Scripture when we quote something out of context, and that is easy to do if we just look at one chapter, one verse as well. Hey, let me give you a quick overview for fun. Uh, how many chapters in the Old Testament? 929 chapters in the Old Testament. Oh, how many chapters in the New Testament? 260 of those. Kelly, how close are you to being done with those chapters? 28 more chapters. She's killing it, right? That's great. Good job. How about verses in the Old Testament? 23,145 verses. So, like, you should just go home and on your mark, on your wall, just mark 23,145 lines and just start checking them off all the way as you read verse by verse. Maybe not. Maybe break it down more in books. So, and 7,957 uh, 7, verses in the New Testament. So, uh, obviously, smaller, less verses there. Hey, where do I begin? Where do I begin? Let me give you two ways. One's not in your notes and the other is. Um, if you are currently reading anything Bible that's just, you're, re you're just reading a few verses here and there, spotty verses, like you're reading maybe a daily devotional, one-page daily devotional, they grab a verse here and a grab a verse here. Certainly don't stop. Those are very helpful and they're very beneficial to us. Um, but I want to encourage you, move past reading the single verse and start getting yourself into chapters. Uh, start getting yourself into a full narrative or a full scripture, uh, whether it's a teaching passage, a story passage, whatever it might be. But read something longer, even at the expense, if you're thinking I'm worried about time, even at the expense of being able to write a bunch of notes or write in your journal, start adding in reading a larger section of scripture, a chapter, a verse, a story, a full teaching that type of thing. Here's the second one. It's in your notes this morning. This is where I begin. If you're like, I'm not even quite sure where to begin to get plugged in. Maybe you're just not done much scripture reading. Statistics do tell us that there are Christians that have been in church a long time and done very, very little Bible reading. And so where do you begin? Let me encourage you. Start with the book of Mark. It's a great place to start. It's a gospel. It's all about Jesus. Uh, it's a little less difficult to understand because Mark doesn't put a lot of the Old Testament reference in there, um, and so it's a good place to start. Once you get kind of grounded there, Luke could add to that for you, and if you got in there and read Luke, it's a longer book. He gives a lot more description, and it's a good bridge to Mark, who doesn't share a lot of Old Testament references, to Matthew, who's going to share a ton of Old Testament references. Luke's a great middle ground uh, in that, in how he writes. If you're one that you're like, I kind of like the, the logical flow, you know, set up an argument, defend an argument, that type of thing. That's kind of how Luke writes his gospel when he's working through it. 
Then I'd say, get into Matthew. Matthew's going to have a ton of cross-reference in Old Testament uh, stuff, which is very important to under, really understanding who Jesus is. And you might go through it and just, like, circle some things, like circle quotes from the Old Testament and eventually go over and look those up, cross-reference them, and say, I'll read those as well and see what those are all about. Uh, and then I encourage you, the book of John, uh, my favorite of the Gospels. We've been preaching through it halfway this year. We'll do the other half next year. But just remember, John is a little more jumbled up in order. And we love to read very chronologically. And that's not how John necessarily writes. Uh, so that would be the last one. Then I always encourage you, get in the book of Acts. See how did this Christianity thing spread? What happened? Where did it go? And uh, what were the people doing when it spread uh, as well? So great places to begin there and jump into the scripture. Our goal this year, one of our three goals this year, was that we would become biblically literate. And I feel like we have been in it. We've given you so many tools and so many directions on how you can engage in God's word more. So we encourage you, as we're kind of closing out on the, the year on this type of teaching, use those tools we've given or come ask for help and we'll help you get plugged in to God's word even better. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, forgive us where we have on one side argued how important your word is, and on the other side, we have not valued it with our time. So, Lord, would you, I pray for everyone in here, would you just spark something deep in our heart, this longing and this passion to want to open up your word and to read, to receive. Well, thank you, Lord, for what you'll teach us. We pray in your son's name. Amen.